Today's reading uh, will be taken from 1 John 1, 5 uh, to 2, 6. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in us, in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Father, how we need our vision to be filled with the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would do that now as your word is opened again. Would your spirit come and persuade us more deeply than ever for the first time of how good you are, of how extraordinary his sacrifice is. Would that transform us here and now? And trusting in him, would you take us to be with you in glory? We ask you to be at work amongst us. This day we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. It'd be wonderful if you could turn back to uh, uh, 1 John, chapter 2. We're looking at verses uh, 1 to 6 today. On our slow little walk through John's first letter. Now, someone comes to you and says, I, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. And what do you say to them? Well, let me go to, to two extremes to, to kind of make it clear. You could say, first of all, oh, do, do you trust in Jesus? Yes, you trust in Jesus? Great. All is well. Don't, 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 let your, don't let your conscience trouble you. All is well. You trust in Jesus? Of course you're a Christian. And you go away happy and he goes away happy. Kind of the next day, though, you find out that he he traffics prostitutes for work in the hotels of Mayfair, and you think, oh, was that the right advice? Something's not quite right there, is it, if he's still doing that? Or the other extreme, so I said, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. 
And you say, do you obey Jesus? Do you? Perfectly? Do you perfectly obey him? Well, uh, golly, uh, not perfectly. Well then, I, I would have very serious doubts about you. You should probably, you know, you're probably not. And she goes away discouraged. And you go away. I don't know what you go away. Um, but actually, she's a lovely Christian woman who trusts in Jesus and is trying her best to follow him, just doesn't obey him perfectly, as no one does. So, oops. If someone says, look, I'm not sure I'm a Christian, you, you might sit here thinking, well, you know, sometimes, I, I don't know, I'm, uh, I've been coming to church for a while, I'm not quite sure if I've made the step or not. You could be thinking that. We need to ask one or two questions more. Because when someone asks you that sort of question, you get the medicine wrong. You prescribe the wrong thing, you're going to do damage. And you want to be careful not to do that. Now we're then in this letter of 1 John. We started a couple of weeks ago. We're slowly going to wind our way through the letter of 1 John, off and on, um, uh, for much of this term and beyond, I think, perhaps. And today we come to uh, chapter 2 and verses 1 to 6. Now, if you've been here, we've been saying, John has a twofold purpose in writing this letter. They kind of appear, oops, they've gone, uh, they kind of appear in the little, uh, little picture there. The two aims are this, John wants us to know with confidence if you're a Christian, but at the same time wants no to idols, and there's our sort of little plasticine friend there who uh, suffices as an idol. So you see that even even in our uh, section tonight, or excuse me, this morning. So verse 3. Look down, chapter 2, verse 3. John writes, We know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. He wants his readers to know that they know Jesus. To be certain that they know. To have confidence that they know. And that's one of his aims that runs throughout the letter. So if we understand this letter rightly, it should give us assurance of our Christian faith and our enjoyment of fellowship with Jesus Christ. It should do. At the same time, there's a second aim, which is he wants to say no to idols. It's the the big thing, particularly when you get towards the end of the letter, because there were some in the church. John is probably writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, and there were some there who'd created a false Jesus. They might as well have got their plasticine pot or their Play-Doh pot out and fashioned a little Jesus and put him on the shelf and said, we worship this one. Because John says, you're not following Jesus Christ. Oh, you may say, look, we follow a Jesus and he gives us a higher experience and superior knowledge. But the truth is, you've made one who makes no demands upon you, who allows you to live your life as you desire. You can be immoral if you want. That's an idol. That's not Jesus Christ, the man who is God. And John has strong words for them. So even in our little section today, chapter 2, verse 4, the man who says, I know him, but doesn't do what Jesus commands, is a liar. Truth's not him. Or verse 6, whoever claims I live in Jesus, well, you've got to walk as Jesus did. Or your claim is nonsense. So John's got strong words. I mean, the shocking truth then, there was clearly some people in the first century who assumed that they were Christians. More merrily going along, yeah, I'm a Christian. And John says, no, you're not. You are not. You've got to wake up and understand that. You're, you're following an idol here. So these two tracks or two ideas run throughout the whole letter. John wants us to know with confidence who the true Jesus is, both objectively, what he did, and subjectively, that we're Christians. But he wants to say no to idols, not to a false Jesus. 
So it's both a pastoral letter and at the same time a polemical letter. It has a word of reassurance, but at the same time a word of rebuke. And those two things uh, run all the way through. And again, very classically, chapter 2, verse 1, at the beginning of our little section today, you get them. So, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But, if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks in our defense to the Father, Jesus Christ. So he says straight away, look, two things. Don't sin. But if you do sin, let's have a little look at how this works. Uh, I think it breaks down this way, essentially. Verses 1 and 2, we have an advocate when we sin. And then verses 3 to 6, if we know him, then we obey him. That's the logic of what's here. Let me just try and show that to you. First then, verses 1 and 2, the first couple of verses here. We have an advocate when we sin. So uh, chapter 2, verse 1. If anyone who does, excuse me, if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks. Literally, we have an advocate. Other translations would uh, translate it that way. It's a legal word. We have a barrister, an advocate, an attorney, custom culturalize it for you, um, uh, who speaks on our behalf. Not, if you're in the UK, in a powdered wig and a long gown, But Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the lawyer, the attorney that we need. Okay? Just let me say two things about that, two little questions. Uh, Why do we need him and what does he do? Why do we need him? Well, that's fairly obvious. Chapter 2, verse 1. If anyone does sin. We need him because of sin. Because, biblically speaking, our sin has made us guilty. One day we'll stand before God, the Father, and he will judge us for how we've lived our lives. And the Bible will say universally we're guilty of rejecting him. We're guilty. Now that is unpopular language. And uh, just generally, if you read the newspapers or on the news, guilt, guilt has kind of dropped out of the English language, certainly in media terms in the last 10 to 20 years. People aren't guilty. People regret things they did. People are sorry, but no one says I'm guilty anymore. So no one will be guilty of doing the wrong thing over those photographs published of Kate. No one's guilty anymore. It's unpopular language. And subjectively, we don't, you know, no one likes to say they're guilty anymore. And people say we're modern people. Don't make me feel guilty. It's not right. I mean, Freud has taught us. The the only reason I ever feel guilty, I have a guilty conscience, there's a gap between how I behave and my parents' expectations. And that gap is my guilty conscience. When you know, when I don't do what they want me to do, I feel a bit guilty, but I shouldn't. Because I'm my own person. Don't make me feel guilty. That's not right. I'm free. I can do what I want. No one can tell me what's right and wrong. I'm certainly not guilty. Sometimes, of course we are. Some settings, it's obvious. On Wednesday night, Wednesday night I was here at church and my car was parked just around the corner and someone reversed into it and uh, smashed up the front right-hand side. So I returned to my car on Wednesday night. Big dent. Broken headlight. No note. No apology. No. Who's done that then? Uh, actually, the, uh, it was just outside um, one of the hotels, and the guy said, oh, yeah, that was a black cab driver. Oh, really? You get his number plate? No, sorry. 
Now, he said, in fact, what he did is he reversed in, big smash, and then he turned off his headlights so no one could see, and uh, drove off. Now, I don't know how he feels about that, and I don't care. I don't know if he feels guilty for driving into my car and then running and driving off. I don't know if the last few nights he's laying on his bed thinking, that poor car, that poor Skoda, I really did some damage there. And that, whoever owns it, well, they'll have to pay. And that, I don't know if he's, he's worried on his bed. Or in fact, he does it, you know, once a month and couldn't care less. Whether he feels guilty or not is irrelevant. He is. And I want him to pay. Because if he doesn't, I do. And that's annoying. Little postscript. I think he's been caught on CCTV. (laughs) I think. I find out tomorrow, for sure. Justice is coming. (laughs) I think. But, um, he wants says, whether the guy feels guilty or not, it's neither here nor there. And for, for you and for me, whether we feel guilty before God, well, who cares? In one sense, it's neither here nor there. Our consciences are a wobbly guide to what's true and what's false. The Lord says we are guilty. He is a perfect judge and declares, actually, for the way you've lived your life, for the fact that you've pushed me to the margins of life, you've not loved me as you should. You've largely ignored me. You're happy to take blessings, but don't want anything to do with me, really. And the way you treat other people, you don't love them either. You're guilty, whether you feel it or you don't feel it. You are guilty. And he's a judge. Of course, it's not the only picture of the Lord. There are many other things to say. But here, this is legal language, and God is a judge. He's a judge who punishes the guilty. We said this extraordinary thing. Did you notice it? I really noticed it this morning. When we baptized Georgia, we prayed together that the Lord would wash her, sanctify her with the Holy Spirit, deliver her from your righteous anger. What an extraordinary thing to say of a child who's, what, eight months? Golly. Yeah, that's right. All of us do it, even at a young age. Reject the Lord. It's very striking language. And the Lord is angry. He's a judge. I mean, the Bible word technically is wrath. Not a, a flying off the ang, a flying off the handle anger. It's not that God loses his temper. No, his is a holy, settled, judicial antagonism to evil. So you, you and I, humans, we don't do wrath very well. We get things disproportionately wrong. So we may look on the news and think, oh golly, look, you know, um, a family's been killed by a hitman in the Alps. Golly, how terrible. Oh, gosh. And oh, look, look, what's, what's happening in Syria this week? Oh, Bashar al-Assad, he's, he's, a few more of his people killed a terrible thing. Golly, that's terrible. And then we drive to church, or maybe we don't, but you know, we drive to ch- drive somewhere in the week, and someone cuts up in front of us in our like, Oh, what do you think you're doing? That's ridiculous. Are you the worst driver I've ever seen? And we're like, we get disproportionately angry. You think, golly, I got more angry over someone driving into my lane, which made me slow down a little bit, than I did over the murder of people. I mean, that, we, we just don't get it right as humans. We get disproportionately angry over the wrong things. The Lord's hostility to sin is a perfect settled, judicial, holy antagonism to all that is evil. He will judge 
perfectly is how the Bible reveals it. So why do we get, sorry, excuse me, why do we need this advocate? We need him because when we enter God's courtroom, we're guilty. That's why we need him. Seconding briefly on this then, what does he do? What does he do? Uh, Chapter 2 and verse 2, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. So this advocate, Jesus Christ, he's an unusual lawyer because he gives his life to pay the penalty for people like you and me. That's unusual in a lawyer. Uh, technically, I guess you'd say technically this word, he is the atoning sacrifice. It's the Bible word, he's the propitiation for our sins. That is, he takes the wrath of God from us. Now, if you find this language strange, I mean, it is slightly strange. The only other time the word comes up in the letter is chapter 4, verse 10. It's worth a little turn to it. It's chapter 4, verse 10. When John can write, this, chapter 4, verse 10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, as a propitiation for our sins. And so according to the Bible, according to God, this is the very, very description of what love is. For God himself to come down in the man Jesus Christ and to pay the penalty for our rejection of him. That is extraordinary love. For one to give his life for those who rejected him to the point of murdering him. Here you have chapter 2, verse 2, back there. Really the heart of the Christian gospel. The way we've lived our life for pushing God out, for not loving others, we're guilty. God's wrath is upon us. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he deserved glory. And what happens on the cross, it's a very simple swap. He takes God's wrath and so we can receive God's glory. Very simple exchange at the heart of the cross. And John can say, look, he's done that for you if you're a Christian. Not only, but also, it goes on, end of verse 2, for the sins of the whole world. That is, his death is so wonderful, it can pay for anyone's sin who puts their trust in him. There is that condition. You've got to trust him. She put these two things together. Jesus Christ is the lawyer, the advocate, and he is the sacrifice of atonement. He's the propitiation. So you've put those two together. Do you see the sort of picture you get? When we stand before God as judge, it is no good us going and saying, oh, I'm going to present my case, because he'll just simply say guilty. But Jesus Christ is there if you're a Christian. Jesus Christ is the barrister, the advocate, and he opens up his brief, and what he presents is his death and resurrection. Pulls out a cross out of his bag and says, here is all that this court needs to know. So when you and I stand in the dock in God's courtroom and the Lord is there as judge and Jesus Christ is there as a barrister, just to just push this a little bit further, it is not that Jesus says, this man is innocent. This woman is innocent because we're not. We're guilty. Secondly, it is not that Jesus says, look, he is guilty, but there are extenuating circumstances. I mean, really, when you consider his upbringing, golly, when you consider the the city and the part of the city he was forced to live in, really, have mercy on him. It's not that. It's not that Jesus says, oh, he's innocent. It's not that Jesus says, have mercy. 
It is, last thirdly, positively, that Jesus says, I demand justice for this man. I have died in his place. The punishment upon him is paid. I'm not asking that you're merciful, Father. I'm asking for justice. The price is paid already. It is as if, in a simple term, you stand in a courtroom and you, for some reason you're being fined a million pounds. The judge says, fine upon you is a million pounds. Your barrister says, yes, yes, but I've paid it, so there's nothing for her to do. And Jesus has paid for us with his life. And of course the father sits there, not as an angry judge, but the father sits there and says, of course, my son, this is what we planned before the creation of the world. Of course. As one writer put it, it is not love pleading with justice, but it is justice pleading with the one who is love. Do you see the difference? Jesus says, he's not saying, Father, have mercy, because what if he is? What if he doesn't? What if the Father doesn't have mercy? He's saying, Father, I want justice. And justice is, I have paid, they go free. We have an advocate when we sin. Now, says John, if you get that, golly, that'll change you. That'll really change you if you get that. So second thing, if we know him, we obey him. If we know him, we obey him. Uh, verses 3 to 6. Verse 3, we know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. That's the statement. You then get two qualifications which follow after it. That's an interesting statement. Verse 3, we know that we've come to know him if we obey his commands. So John is talking here of a a knowledge of God that is exceptionally powerful. Because this knowledge will drive you to obey. You'll desire to obey if you have this knowledge. That's a very powerful sort of knowledge. If you go throughout this letter of 1 John, this is not cognitive stuff. This is not simply, I know this. I can explain the Christian message in six pictures. It is an experiential knowledge as well. So I could say, I know Boris Johnson. I could say that. I know who he is. I recognize a picture. In fact, you could recognize a silhouette. He's got fairly distinctive uh, sort of look to him. You could say, I know Boris Johnson. In fact, I've met Boris Johnson. I've had a little chat with Boris Johnson. But I don't know him. I don't know what makes him tick. I don't know what he's like when the cameras aren't watching. I don't really know him. Or uh, uh, last week, uh, so on uh, whatever it was, Monday night, Andy Murray finally won uh, his Grand Slam. So won the US Open. And um, I watched one little interview with him, and he said, you don't know how good this feels. And of course, I sat there and thought, no, I don't. Actually, I don't. I haven't won a Grand Slam tennis tournament. Probably unlikely to at this point in my life. I don't know how it feels. I don't know. I can kind of understand that he's had frustration, but I don't know what that means for him. If Arne Lendl knows how he feels, he went through the same thing, lost four Grand Slams, finally won one. It's, a, it's, a, it's not just cognitive. It's you understand, you, there's a relational element to it. Or Jesus in uh, John's Gospel, chapter 14, says to Philip, don't you know me, Philip, at the Last Supper? Which is a very strange question. Because Philip could say, well, hold on a minute, yeah, I, I've known you for the last three years. 
We've eaten meals together. We've um, we've drunk together. We've had some crazy times. There've been all sorts of storms you've rescued me from. You know, we've woken up and you know we've been sleeping in the same uh, fields together. Yeah, we know one another. You don't know me, Philip, because you don't understand really what I'm about. There's not. You know some things, but you don't know me. You don't know my ambitions, what I'm about. And that's what John is talking about here. There's a certain knowledge of God that transforms you. It's absolutely life-changing. It's not just cognitive. It's having walked with him, lived with him. The contrast comes in uh, verse 4, and it's a very strict contrast. I mean, it's very stark. I mean, just, just put it in a picture so you can see it's incredibly stark, very briefly. The one who does not obey God's commands is a liar. The truth is not in him. If you obey God's commands, we know him. God's love is made complete in him. You see, it's very stark when you put it like that. John is wanting to unsettle some people here a little bit. He's wanting to to splat the Play-Doh Jesus that says, yeah, I follow Jesus. Does he change your life? No. He forgives me whatever I do. I don't, I don't, I don't ever read what he wants me to do. I just kind of go with the flow. I follow my heart. However I feel. That's what I do. And John's saying, uh-uh, that's nonsense. That's an idol you're following right there. If you know him, you obey him. He's saying the highest expression of love for God is not, it's not expressed in sentimental language or mystical experience, but in moral obedience. That's how you express Love, according to John, it's been unsettling, isn't it? Or is it? When he says here, the um, uh, verse 5, if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. There's certain ambiguity there. It's just the love of God. If anyone obeys his word, the love of God is made complete in him. Is that God's love for us? Or is it our love for God? I think John's saying there's a virtuous spiral that goes on here. When we understand the love of God for us, we obey. That is the highest expression of our love for him. And we enjoy, we experience the smile of God ourselves then, more fully. Let me try and illustrate this to make the point. I think that what John is talking here, knowing God in the sense he's talking about here, it's similar to a marriage. Now, you can be married for 20 years, say, and uh, imagine you say to your spouse gently uh, one day, can I just tell you some truths that would improve our marriage? And uh, gently. And so you say to your spouse, can I be honest with you, when you get your phone out at the dinner table and you're constantly playing with it, and every ping you pick it up, and I'm talking, you're ignoring me, going, uh-huh, uh-huh. That's kind of annoying. The way you flirt with other men, other women, depending on sex, that, that's kind of annoying. That, that doesn't make me feel good, if I'm honest. That just doesn't work. By contrast, when we sit down and have time together, and talk, and share our frustrations and daydreams, ambitions, that really works. Okay. Oh, interesting. So you say all that to your spouse, and the next day they're they're playing with their phone, 
while they're flirting with someone at the table next to you in the restaurant, and you, and they say, shh, don't want to talk, talking, and, um, and, they, and they just ignore everything you say. Do you feel the love? You don't feel the love at that point. I mean, legally, of course, you're still married, but there's there's something just not quite right there. You're not feeling love. They're not expressing love. It's, it's going to spiral down a little bit. By contrast, you share your frustrations one day, the phone, the flirting, the talking, the spouse nods. The next day they come in, they sweep you off for three days in Paris, and you you dance under the stars while drinking champagne. You drift to a Greek island, and you dance along the beach, and uh, you say, oh, this is this is wonderful. Yes, let's talk. Oh, can we? This is wonderful. Where's your phone? I left it in London. Did you? Oh, you do love me. I do. Now, that happened to me last week. It was great. (laughs) Now, second scenario. Other couple more married. No, you're married. You can't be more married. It doesn't work. Is there a knowing of love there? Yes, there is. Do you know that they love you? Are you feeling the love at that point? Yes, you are. And so John wants to write to Christians to say, look, if you're in doubt, if you're thinking, am I a Christian? Two things you need to do. The first and the most important is you look up to Jesus Christ, who is your advocate and who pleads for you. Says, my blood was shed for this individual. They are a Christian. Look up and see him. Repent of your sins and go forward and enjoy. And then secondly, as you allow that truth to transform you, change you, get on and obey. And as you walk in obedience, you'll think to yourself, I love God and it's costly, but I'm doing what he wants me to do because I love him. And God, it's it's really enjoyable obeying God. You will know, experience his love for you. You're not more married. You're not more a Christian at that point, but you'll know it. John says, verse 3, I want you to know that you... I want you to know. I want you to know that you know Jesus Christ in how you walk day by day. We have an advocate when we sin. If we know him, we obey him. That's the logic here. Now, just before we finish, one brief misunderstanding. I just... uh, what we want to make sure we don't fall into. John is not expecting perfection here. If you were here last week, we looked at these verses, chapter 1, 5 to 9. And do you remember he insists on a lifestyle of walking in obedience? What characterizes you? Everyone makes mistakes. No one obeys God perfectly. That's just impossible to do this side of heaven. But what is typical? Are you trying to make progress? You walk in the light, walk in the darkness. So not perfect obedience, But habitual obedience is what John would expect in the believer. Now, question. I'm a Christian. I know I'm trusting in Jesus Christ as my advocate. I am making progress in walking in obedience. Question. Why am I struggling so much to forgive that bloke at work? Just whenever I think of him, I... My body tenses up. I feel so angry. Why? Why am I struggling so much to forgive him? Well, according to this, John would say, 
The issue is you doubt the love of God for you. Because if you know in your head and and you're walking in the love of God for you, if you know it, the more you understand in your heart the love of God shown to you in Jesus Christ, the more you'll be able to love like him and obey like him. The more, excuse me, the more you'll be able to love and forgive like him. Or question. Question. Okay, I, I'm following Jesus Christ, trusting in my advocate, I'm seeking to follow him, I'm seeking to walk in, in a pattern of obedience. Why am I so selfish? I just really struggle to be generous. When I sort of daydream, it's always about me. <laughs> my needs. My life. My triumphs. My Failures. Well, I'm just slightly self-absorbed and self-obsessed. Why? Why is that? Why am I just all? Why is it all about me when I think I'm trying? Answer according to this. You don't know God well enough. You don't know how generous He is towards you, with His love. And the more you know that, the more that liberates you to be generous to others, less self-absorbed. As you know what the love of God for you, it's transforming. It enables you to obey in different ways. So any of our struggles with sin are a deficiency in our knowledge of the love of God, is what they are. We're doubting it, we don't get it. We're not walking in it. So what are we to do? We're chapter 4, verse 10. Back there, just dwell on that love. This is love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We've got to dwell on that love. Confess your sin. And then rejoice in Christ as your saviour. Now look, I know that for some, this language of judge... God is a judge. He will judge us because we're guilty for our sin. Jesus has paid for it by his death, by his blood. Some just find that language outdated, archaic. But let me just try and persuade you again. The Bible is clear here. 1 John is very clear. When you get the depth of your sin, It drives you to rejoice more than you've ever done in the goodness and the sacrifice, the sufficiency of what the Saviour has done. If you've got a problem, if your sin is skin deep, you need a Saviour who's skin tall. If your problem is fundamentally profound, you need a Saviour who can save you in a wonderfully profound way. Do you see the, do you see how those two always, they have to go together? The more you understand your problem, the greater you love the one who saves you. And that drives you on in obedience. I was talking uh, fairly recently to a man called Dick Lucas, who some would know. He was the minister of um, a church over in the city for about 30 odd years, uh, St. Helens in the city. He was, um, uh, he's got some great stories. When you get to 87, you've got a lot of good stories. Uh, and uh, he was regaling the time when uh, in 1955, Billy Graham came to Cambridge. It was the second time, Big Billy as he called him, uh, Billy, second time that Billy Graham had come to the UK, he'd come in 54, 55 he came over to Cambridge. But Cambridge University, now this caused a huge stink. So the Times newspaper was full of letters, who is this 
kick of a cowboy coming to our elite university. This is appalling that he's going to address the finest students in the land. The proctor of Cambridge University gave a big warning, had to warn the students there was a there was a plot to kidnap Billy Graham and put him back on a plane before he could do any speak. The proctor had to say, you but listen, this will be very bad for the university. Do not kidnap Billy Graham. Be very embarrassing. Um, sort of outrage. So Billy Graham arrived in November 55 and um, he met with the two people who had previously spoken at the Cambridge mis- Mission, who were John Stott and uh, C.S. Lewis, both very erudite uh, professors, and so listened to them, okay, okay, and thought, well, that's how I've got to preach. I've got to try and preach like C.S. Lewis and John Stott. So on the Sunday night, uh, he stood up and, and tried to preach this sort of erudite uh, sermon and... Um, and he did the same on the on the Monday night and on the Tuesday night. By all accounts, on the Wednesday afternoon, he met again with C.S. Lewis and John Stott, and they said to him, "Can you just be yourself? This is, you know, we've heard you before. This is not what you do. You're trying to be clever here. You're trying to sort of connect between you and the students. And it, to be honest, it is a bit embarrassing. It doesn't work. Just be yourself, okay?" Mr. Dick Lucas tells the story of the Wednesday night where he sat in the chancel of Great St. Mary's with 2,000 students there uh, listening. And Billy Graham just stood up and he started in the book of Genesis and went all the way to the book of Revelation and he just explained every sacrifice of atonement for sin that is in the Bible for over an hour. Every one. And how they culminate in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Dick dictates the story very well. He says, on one side of me was the um, was the Regis Professor of Religion. On the other side of me was the local bishop. And they were both appalled. What is this primitive nonsense? How can this fool of a man stand up and spout this thing in front of our students? And of the 2,000 there, well, 400 that night professed faith in Jesus Christ. And Dick says, now age 87, he still meets people who in November 1955 became Christians on Wednesday night in Great St. Mary's in Cambridge, who've gone around the world telling people about Jesus Christ. Because if you get, if you know that he is a sacrifice of atonement for you, golly, that'll change you. Nothing will change you like that. Let's pray together. Father God, here is strong meat for the soul. And so we pray your spirit would impress upon us, not just so that we can think it through in our heads, but that we know that uh, we are guilty before your bar, that Jesus Christ is a wonderful, wonderful saviour who has paid the full depths of our guilt and our sin. And knowing that, we would walk in obedience. Father, if we're Christians, we do want to be those who delight in knowing you, And we only know that full delight when we walk in obedience. So drive the truth of Christ's work into us, we pray, so we live lives that honour you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.